Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. First responders have been in the news for their amazing reaction to the COVID pandemic. But when you call 911, who is sent to help? Who responds when you call 911? Tonight, on call with the Prairie Dock, celebrating our 20th season. Welcome everybody, it's good to see you. Um, this is Dr. Deborah Johnston, I'm one of the Prairie Doc physicians and I'm here today with Dr. Matt Owens from Redfield. Uh, we are going to be talking about emergency medical services. Dr. Owens, how did you get into the EMS? Well, sort of back, I, I, I joined the Army Reserve when I was in high school uh, did my medic training with uh, a couple months of Uncle Sam and then went on and, and got uh, EMT training and it just kind of evolved after that. Yeah, 40 years. 40 years, that's a lot of time. Yep. You've done a lot of uh, various roles in medicine. So mm -hmm. a question that came up uh, for us on the radio show this um, week what is the difference in training between an EMT and a paramedic? Um, basically the EMT training is roughly 150 hours with change uh, with some hands-on training. Paramedics at a kind of a totally different level. A lot of the courses are roughly 12 months long. Uh, an EMT is allowed to do basic uh, life-saving interventions. Uh, things like stabilize the spine, CPR, uh, defibrillate uh, with an AED, and stop an AED is a automatic external defibrillator. Um, you just put it on and push go or no go. Um, there so that the machine actually interprets mm -hmm. the person's heart rate or heart rhythm and decides is this something that an electrical shock Absolutely. might help restart that hard or not. Right, and the thing that is, they're, they're foolproof. Um, where a paramedic, not only do they have all that training, they virtually all start as EMTs, and then they move on to the paramedic program, which includes things like pharmacology, what drugs to give when somebody has a bad heart rhythm, um, airway, advanced airway management, they can uh, intubate you, hook you up on a ventilator, uh, very much uh, a much more advanced role, I think it'd be the, an easy way to put that. So a lot more training, mm -hmm. a lot more technical abilities, kind of a lot more um, information and education with which they can assess the patient and decide what intervention might be necessary to help keep that person with us until they can get to yeah. the emergency room. Yeah, a lot wider, a lot deeper skill set. Yep. Excellent. We look forward to reading and hearing your questions. So please give us a call at the number on your screen, send us a message through our Facebook app, let us know what you're interested in hearing about, 
uh, today about EMS services and the training uh, that they receive, what they can do, and how badly we need them. Dr. Owens, you had told me about a uh, program that you have been instrumental in getting started to help provide emergency services in rural areas. Yeah, and basically, like a lot of things in life, you've got to start with some funding. Mm -hmm. So when you look at data back to 2016 in the state of South Dakota, over a third of EMS agencies um, stated they were not able to respond at all or in a timely fashion to a critical incident because of lack of, of EMTs or first responders. Uh, subsequent to that, and working in conjunction with Sanford School of Medicine, South Dakota Medical Association, Department of Health, and other key players, include AHEX, including AHEX, um, we've got grant money now to help support uh, EMT training, paramedic training. Uh, there's even, it's in a different area than I work in, but CNA and RN training, all these vitally important jobs that we're short on in rural America. Short on kind of all over, but the mm -hmm. shortage is particularly acute here in, in rural America. So you mentioned AHEC. What, what is AHEC? AHECs are what's called our federally designated area health education cooperatives. There's three in South Dakota. So there's one in Aberdeen, Northeast AHEC. There's one down in the Yankton area, Southeast AHEC. And there's one West, West River, and that's out basically in the Rapid City area. And they're in, in South Dakota, they picked up different things on what they're, what they're doing. So the Southeast AHEC for the last 15 years, maybe a little bit more, have been absolutely critical in our disaster training, um, in our health sciences students, for example. Uh, the Northeast AHEC has been absolutely leading the way in free EMT training. We started right as COVID was kind of starting to rear its ugly head, and uh, we started what they called the Thursday night EMT CME, and now it's monthly. And I believe we're well into that thousand range as far as EMTs that have received um, CME training at no cost. And supporting that effort is the South Dakota Medical Association and the med school because they're providing uh, subject matter experts within different areas of, of training and they jump on and it's a Zoom meeting and um, we've had some really good, really good feedback on that. That's amazing. What an incredible gift that is to the state of South Dakota and a great model for the rest of the country. Yeah, because when you're short on EMTs in, let's say, a smaller community and they have to leave town and the county in order to get CME, guess what? You're even now shorter. Absolutely. Yep. An important part of medicine in rural areas of South Dakota includes access to first responders and life-saving equipment. In fact, the need for qualified emergency medical service volunteers is critical. Carter Schmidt introduces us to an ambulance service in Lake Norton to find out why it is important to the volunteers and the area it serves. The Lake Norton Ambulance District includes 17 first responders, including emergency vehicle operators, which are specially certified drivers, EMTs, advanced EMTs, RN EMTs, and paramedics. 
Wendy Dennison is one of the ambulance drivers. I make sure that my, my crew gets there safely. I assist them um, while we're there with if they need backboards, if they need um, equipment or, or specialty bags out of the rig, things like that. Austin Rickard is also a driver. You know, you're watching in front of you, behind you. You know, if it's nighttime, you're watching for deer, you're watching for s snow. I mean, you just never know in South Dakota what you're gonna have. But you're also trying to pay attention to kind of what's going on in the back, since we would be the ones transmitting to the hospital if they're asking for an update. Joey Dennison has always been interested in community service. So when he saw a flyer at a Lake Norton gas station, he decided to start training to become a paramedic. Well, it was kind of uh, eye-opening. They flop you down a 1,300-page book and say you're going to cover that in about 200 hours and test on it. And uh, a little intimidating to begin with, but the more you dig in, the more I was addicted. Chris Smith is an RN EMT who joined the crew with hospital and long-term care experience. You're feeling a need. Even the calls that don't end well, you've been there to comfort somebody. And sometimes that's all you can do. These first responders say the experience is rewarding, especially knowing they're saving lives. Uh, we call it impending doom in EMS, where they think they're dying. And maybe they are, but just a few things that you can do that you've been trained on can turn them around and that look on their face. You know, it's when you, they turn the corner. They don't have that impending doom anymore. I think the rewards are huge, but I also think, I mean, you're going to serve your community. You're going to carry your friends and your family and your coworkers are the people that you're going to help. So in the, in the end, it's hugely rewarding and people need an ambulance service in rural South Dakota. If you can commit the time and don't mind the sight of blood, volunteering as a first responder is not only rewarding, but potentially life-saving. There's a need and the more people we get out there certified, uh, the better chances of that heart attack we can turn around or, you know, the bad cut that we could stop the bleed, all of that. And the key to EMS is you never know when you are the one that's going to need to be helped. On stuff like this, emergency or a matter of minutes, as quick as you can get there is potentially a life or death. I think that really gave a beautiful explanation for why it's so important and, and how it can be so important, not just to the patients and the community, but fulfilling to the people that do yeah. this. So you've had some partners in helping you develop this program and helping make um, this information and this training available. And one of the partners is somebody that we wouldn't or an organization we wouldn't normally think about as providing health care. Tell me about that. Yeah, this is uh, this has never been done, and I think this is really going to be a wave of the future in American agriculture. So in talking with members of a group called Agtegra, they're a locally owned ag cooperative. Um, they're one of their primary offices in Aberdeen, but they're all the way from up in North Dakota and south, mostly eastern South Dakota. Um, they have stepped forward looking at needs. They have uh, multiple people on the road every day, 100 to 200 trucks maybe on the road. They're in the ag, uh, grain handling business, the chemical, all these different part of modern agriculture. 
and their leadership team has decided they're going to pay. This is key. They're going to pay those employees that want to take what we're calling Dakota Responder Training and become part of this response program. So what we did is we looked at what are the three key things that you really can change an outcome when you're more than 30 minutes away from a hospital. And they are stop the bleed, tourniquets, Narcan overdose, or opiate overdose with the use of Narcan, and the use of automatic external defibrillators. And that program, that really gets rolling here in the next few weeks. And uh, we're going to do pre-test and post-test data. We're going to look to see, did we make a difference? And, and the fact that this, this uh, co-op is willing to more than just put their toes in the water, but jump in on this, I find very rewarding. And one of the things is, I think we're going to pick up some EMTs out of it. I think some of these folks from the smaller towns are going to say, I like that, I'm willing to go on to the next step and get a EMT um, program training and get on the local get on the local, local team. Service. So yeah. this, that's fabulous. I mean, what an incredible opportunity to provide some basic care in places that are a long ways away from EMT mm -hmm. services and ambulance services and hospitals. So what an exciting thing, what a great thing for their leadership to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's the wave of the future. You know, that's one of the thoughts I had when you were telling me about these things, is this is going to be a real model, I think, for developing EMT emergency services and medical services around the country. This is a pretty innovative program that you guys have developed, and that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and if you look at rural America in general, you know, flyover country, <laughs> this is just over and over and over and over again. The age structure has changed. We're older. Um, we have less people of that volunteer age uh, available to recruit from. The uh, number of calls is up as people age. And the job of uh, a Dakota responder is not to transport somebody. They're there to show up. They need a tourniquet. They need uh, Narcan, whatever they can do. And maybe it's just simply getting on that high-tech phone, calling in, we've got this, this, and this, here's the location, I'm here, and nothing else, you got a couple extra set of hands. That's willing to jump in. Yep, and, jump and in and help. help. And hold or do whatever needs yep, to be done. Help. Is there any um, incorporation of GPS technology in this whole process? Yeah, uh, Agtegra has a, a system, I'm not real clear on exactly how it works because I am not the IT guy, <laughs> trust me. But they know where all their trucks are at any given time and like what speed they're going, what direction they're going. Um, Texas A&M actually has a program where they can ping off phones, let's say if the, you know, uh, this has nothing to do with Agtegra at this point, maybe in the future. Uh, where they have their volunteers um, set up with iPhones and um, high-tech phones. So if they're going down a road and there's, say, an accident 15 miles away from them, they can ping everybody that's signed up to volunteer for this sort of thing. They can converge on the, on the spot and, and help out locally. Uh, we've got some funding through the Department of Labor and the uh, SAMHSA program where we're actually going to equip uh, these vehicles with what I call a ditch kit. 
and it's going to be a stop the bleed kit with tourniquets and packing and that sort of thing and then a, uh, we're going to then keep the Narcan and the uh, defibs and stuff more at their uh, local offices because of the, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Narcan does not do well in the heat and it does mm -hmm. even worse when it's cold. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so early recognition will be a huge part of that training. How to find, figure out what you need in order yeah. to get that help to that person. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about what we're doing here, what you're doing to try to increase the um, availability of those EMS trained individuals in, mm -hmm. in rural South Dakota and in rural areas in general. But what can I do as an individual to help make the EMS job easier. How can I make sure that what they need to know about me is available to them? So one of the things you can do is contact Northeast AHEC and get on the list of uh, folks that are willing to uh, speak and be a subject matter expert and help them with their CME. Let's go back a little bit though, uh, kind of the nidus or the the building block for a lot of this is, is this grant that we've got from the Department of Labor and for the, the SAMHSA folks. And what this is, is it's multimodal. So if somebody wants to, let's say they're 20 and they're working or they're going to school and they want to become an EMT, we have a program that uh, is fully developed uh, where they can go online, take their EMT course, I believe it's two nights a week for a couple hours, and then they meet on uh, every other or maybe most Saturdays for hands-on training, depending on what part of the state you're in. And that is covered for the most part by the Department of Labor Grant. There's another interesting thing that the med school is doing with HOSA, Health Occupation Student Association. And that is what we call dual credit EMT. So especially those folks that are looking at down the line being EMTs or down the line going into healthcare, whether mm -hmm. it's nursing, doctor, or whatever, um, they can get dual credit at a reduced cost to take the EMT course while in high school. Mm. So they get college credit, high school credit. Uh, they have to be 18 when they take the actual test, but then they're available for that local community. They take that training. Um, either if they stay in the local community and work, great. If they go on for further training, hopefully that'll serve as an anchor to bring them back to their community. Something very important for a mm -hmm. lot of a lot of South Dakota. Um, we had a resident from Rapid City who's wondering if there's a route for individuals maybe who were previously certified as an EMT or a paramedic to become recertified or if they have to start all over with that educational process. Now I don't know what the time frame is, but what I would recommend they do is they get a hold of the South Dakota Department of Health, go on their website, pull down EMS, and then shoot that question at them. And if they can't get the answer there, I think that shouldn't be a problem. Um, contact whoever, whatever district they're in, uh, that EMS um, agency and see what it would take. I'm not up on how long you can be out of the game before you have to retrain for the game. Don't know what the rules are. So at least they've got an avenue to be able to do mm -hmm. that at not much cost to them anymore if they want to get back into it. Yep. Um, we've talked a lot about rural 
areas, particularly rural South Dakota, North Dakota. What about the bigger places? What about places like Sioux Falls and Rapid City? Are they having workforce issues with their EM EMS services as well? Well, when I looked at that data from 2016 and 2017, at least at that time, they were pretty robust. And one of the reasons why one of their driving forces is why they're, they're doing well is, is for the most part, they pay their paramedics, they pay their EMTs. For example, where I'm at, my wife is an RN and an EMT, and she gets $2 an hour to take call. That is just simply not sustainable. So the larger areas are not depending on a volunteer workforce. Not as they, much. Not right. as much mm -hmm. as, as the rural areas. And that certainly is a barrier for Huge. a lot of places. Um, if you don't get paid for something, it's hard to commit a lot of time to it for yep. all of us. Yeah. Um, so what do you see as the future of rural EMS services? I think what we're going to see is, and we'll know more after we get this Agtegra data back, I think we will see a continuum of care. So we'll have groups of people, whether they're associated with a ag co-op or something within that area that have some basic skill set in order to respond to an emergency. Then the next step will be the EMT. I don't think it's in all likelihood possible that some place where I, like where I work, we have one paramedic. I don't see where there's a whole lot of room to add a lot of paramedics just because of cost. But the next step would be EMTs who have trained through this program so they can get through it without any um, financial disturbance. Mm -hmm. And then as we move up that response ladder, then the more uh, tertiary facilities um, will be doing more more of the transfers. Now, right now with COVID going on, it's, yeah. yeah, I don't know what the answer is right now. I don't know if anybody does. No, no. Yep. And that is a nice segue for us to make a plea to all of you. If you have not had your COVID vaccine, please get your COVID vaccine. The healthcare system is really overwhelmed right now. We need everybody to get their vaccine. We need everybody to get their flu shot. We need everybody to get their COVID booster. Omicron is coming, flu is coming, and our healthcare system is already really overburdened. We need you to please get vaccinated. Please wear your masks when you're in public. Please do everything you can to help flatten the curve for us so that if you have the car accident, if you have the heart attack, if you have the overdose, the services are not already full with the COVID patients. So please get your vaccines. And, and I'll, I'll talk about this from an economic cost. So the cost of inpatient ICU care, Huge. how much a day you think? Uh, 10,000. Easy. Yeah. So that cost ultimately will be carried by the, both the American taxpayer and the American who buys health insurance. Mm -hmm. So we need or to get- Or consumes healthcare. Or consumes healthcare, correct. So we're gonna pay for this and so prevention, like a lot of things in healthcare, is way cheaper than the cure. Like a lot of things in life, it's a lot cheaper to change my oil than it is to rebuild my engine. And you better not need a chip. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, not right now anyway. 
<laughs> so everybody, please, that's, that's our plea. It's from both Dr. Owens and I. Please get your vaccines. I, I promise yeah. there's no chip in them. I promise that the vaccines are safe. The vaccines yeah. are effective. I've had my vaccine. Matt's had his vaccine. Me too. All three. Everyone in my family except my daughter who's getting it this weekend, whether she knows it or not. Outstanding. She just turned 16. So she's 16. So she's just been approved. But everybody else has had their three. So everybody, even if you're a healthy 19-year-old, please get your vaccines. If you don't do it for yourself, do it for the people you're around. Absolutely. You know, the 19-year-old the is probably not going to be the person in the hospital bed, but they may give it to their professor, their coworker, their neighbor, their parent, their grandparent who is in that hospital bed. We need everybody to play our part in reducing the amount of COVID that we're seeing because we're yep. seeing way too much. Yep. So, all right. Um, let's let everybody please call in. Get us some of your questions. There's a number on your screen. You can send the message through uh, our Facebook page. Um, we'd love to get more of your questions in there. And let's get to some of those questions here. We have uh, one question here from someone uh, wanting to know how we make the decision about how we're going to get a patient to a higher level of care? How do we decide whether they're going by ground in an ambulance or whether they are even maybe going in their own car or flying in a helicopter? Okay, so there, there's two answers to that question. One is pre-COVID and one's COVID. <laughs> right. So now that you're in COVID. Um, the answer we, is you're not, you're staying you're, where you're you are. You're staying where you're at. I mean, we're, what my little hospital, we got great trained nurses, we got great trained uh, personnel there. Uh, but we're holding on and needing to hold on to people longer than we typically would because there's no open bed. There's no ICU bed for the person having the heart attack, etc. And when we say beds, we don't necessarily mean the physical bed. Right. Physical beds are easy to come by. I Let's mean, go buy one. yeah, the the shortage at this point in the pandemic is not in equipment. It is in trained personnel. Exactly. You can have a bed, but if you don't have a nurse to take care of the patient in that bed, a respiratory therapist to take care of that patient, somebody to help that patient turn over, a doctor to, to adjust the settings and decide on medicines, it might as well not be there. Right. So when we look back before this COVID event, um, a lot of it had to do, so let's say where I work is what's called a critical access care hospital. If you're, let's say you're 80 something, and I'm not trying to sound like age is a, a cutoff, but let's say I know you really well, been your doctor for 20 years, you've seen the cardiologist in the last three months, and you come in with heart failure. Okay, been in for heart failure three times in the last three years. You stay in Redfield, we tune up your heart failure, we take care of you, you see the cardiologist the next time they fly in. Same patient that's young, or even at that age that we know nothing about, we don't know anything about the anatomy of their heart, then those folks get a intervention uh, without getting into details. They get certain medications and then they get transferred on to a larger facility that has a cath lab. Mm -hmm. Trauma um, is one of the leading causes of death in agriculture. It's one of the leading causes of death in rural America. Most of those folks in a, in a critical 
access hospital care environment are going to get what we call life-saving interventions, the uh, tourniquet and airway, pain control, that sort of stuff, and then right on to the surgeon, because in my view, and I think everybody has the same view, trauma is a surgical disease. Absolutely. That's what they went and to school for. It's a surgical, surgical solution. There's also a concept to, to kind of get back to the idea of how are we sending people there. There are some things that are really time sensitive, trauma being a great example yeah. of that. And sometimes it's even f faster where we're at uh, to use ground and go right to Aberdeen. Yeah. Sometimes it's faster to use uh, rotor wing. Sometimes it's faster to use fixed wing. It all has to do with the time sensitivity of the disease. So that brings us uh, forward to another thing that people don't understand about EMS and EMTs. So when an EMT calls you from the scene on the radio and says they have this, this, and this, and you automatically know that this is not somebody we're keeping here in, mm -hmm. um, you activate that system and you preload it because you want to get that patient to a surgeon not after you've assessed them, but if you know the mechanics of injury and what that EMT is telling you about what they're seeing on the ground. So you can get that person to the operating room without delay. any delay. Yep. There's a concept we call the golden hour. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a very important concept from a medical perspective, but it also speaks to why what you're talking about with the EMS services is so important in rural areas. We don't have time to get somebody 40 minutes into Redfield and then stabilize them and then wait for the air transport and, and send them on. We need that skilled EMS person to be there to call you and say, this is what I've got, this is what I'm seeing, so that you might even be able to call and get the helicopter to meet them at the scene and get that person to the person that can, to the surgeon that can help them. Yeah, I've had actually, uh, one of, right after I moved to Redfield, we had a very bad um, MVA north of town and we never actually brought them back to Redfield. They put the helicopter down in the pick bean field. We had ground. We did life-saving interventions at the scene, and they were all, the scene was cleared, and they were to the appropriate surgical specialties um, because there was no scientific reason to have them come back to Redfield to get x-rays because I can't act on what that x-ray tells me anyway. Mm -hmm. It also comes up to the, the idea of triage, which is something mm -hmm. that as an Army medic, of course, you were very familiar with the idea of triage, but that's something that you have to do in any kind of a mass casualty situation mm -hmm. where you don't have the resources. I've got one helicopter, I've got two helicopters, I can't take five patients to Sioux Falls or Aberdeen at the same time. Somebody has to go first and maybe somebody else is going to come to Redfield and you're going to start the IVs and you're going to start the x-rays and you're going to do whatever you can until it's their turn for that helicopter. Yep. So. Yep. And that can be tough. Deciding oh, absolutely. Who goes first? Who goes first and who's absolutely may not be going at all. Absolutely. That is, yep. is a very difficult thing. So... All right, so we have a caller from Millbank 
who wants to know more about the importance of the Stop the Bleed training. Tell the lay people what we need to know. You need to go get the training. <laughs> so what's... It's black and white. What's, All right, what's my so, time commitment? So here, here's the deal. Let's talk about where Stop the Bleed came from. It goes all the way back, uh, a couple presidents back. And what they did is they looked at our uh, servicemen and women coming, dead, obviously, mm -hmm. coming back from Afghanistan, Iraq, Iraq, and they had forensic pathologists look at how many of these people died from a preventable injury. In other words, how many bled to death. That we could have stopped if yeah. somebody had known what to do. And because the DOD is, is fairly quick to respond, that's why they're all carrying tourniquets. So then the American College of Surgeons started working with, I believe, DOD people. There's probably a little uh, cross overlap there. And they came up with a course, it's about 90 minutes long, pretty straightforward. Um, they first teach you how to pack a wound. And if that doesn't work and they keep bleeding, then where to put the tourniquet and crank it down and, and stop the bleed. Because, um, you know the old adage in trauma, all bleeding will stop. All bleeding stops. We just want to get it stopped while you still have a heartbeat. <laughs> That's the best time to stop the bleeding. Yeah, yeah before. Absolutely, before, before the yeah. heartbeat goes. So the bottom line, take the class. It's not a huge time commitment and you might save a life. Once again, I would reach out to the South Dakota Department of Health. They're, um, they're, they've got folks that are working within that um, Stop the Bleed program and you may be able to find a, a, in Millbank, you may actually have a course just coming up. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So absolutely. We should all know some of that basic first aid and more advanced first aid yes. information. Yep. We have another person who has her personal medical information on her fridge. She's wondering if the paramedics will notice this information when they enter the home and follow the information, for example, a DNR, or will they just follow what they've been trained to do? I'm not sure if I have the full answer on that. It's really good to keep past medical history on you. Uh, Primarily due to the fact you have, um, what, three different, four different healthcare systems, and, mm. and the EMRs generally don't talk to each other. No, nope, not at all. <laughs> so it's probably good to have in writing that you have a history of this, this, and this, and this. And if you have a uh, living will or a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment, which is more of a long-term care concept, um, I would have that, um, have loved ones know that, that, that you have that available. And, and and keep that uh, keep that around. Yep. There are particularly people who have known um, life-limiting diagnoses. There yeah. are particular forms that can be filled out, signed by your doctor, that kind of gives the the paramedics, the EMS services, the authority not to intervene, not to Correct. provide resuscitative efforts so uh, that's something that you should talk with your doctor about if you are in that position absolutely and, and, and you don't have to make that decision on day one and the thing about um yeah we're start we started talking about emts now we're talking about end-of-life care which yeah, is kind of cool yeah. <laughs> but uh there's different gradations of that too and that's where that uh Molst or pulsed or whatever form comes in where you're willing to do this but not that and this but not this or all the above or none of the above or some of the above. Yep. Yeah. 
We have another question who's wondering what training is required to be a flight nurse? Well, not real familiar with that whole area, but obviously you have to have an RN. Yep. Uh, the ones that I see that fly in to pick people up, I believe they all have some cross-training as a paramedic. And I, I think that they're usually the really experienced nurses yeah. that have had a lot of ER experience. And um, it's, it's not so much a training program that they're going through. It is on-the-job right. training that gets them there. Speaking of training programs, and we had talked a little bit about this earlier, but the South Dakota Area Health Education Centers collaborate with a network of community, state, healthcare, and academic partners to meet the healthcare workforce needs of South Dakota. Michaela Titus of Northeast AHEC tells us about the organization's role in emergency medical services training. We do continuing education webinars for EMS providers, so emergency medical services. Um, and what we found is there was such a need for quality education that would be able to be provided to these providers in these rural communities. We focus kind of our primary career that we, or not career, but that profession we focus on is EMS because it is such a strong need. So we really that's kind of like one that's really at the forefront of our career exploration for that. We're working on developing our website to host a place where if someone wants to be EMS, but they don't know how, they don't know where to go, they don't know where classes are, everything like that. It's just like a go-to spot. So they can come to our website, see, okay, I want to be an EMT. How do I do that? Like, do I, and so it's like, okay, here's a step-by-step -step on where, where you need to go and what you need to do to become an EMT. And so really bringing all these different resources that are out there into one place so it's an easy access for those interested to map, to help them kind of provide a map for them to become an EMT. Really good information. She kind of answered some of the questions we've been getting about how do I find this information? Michaela's got a lot of good answers. <laughs> yeah. You've worked with Michaela. I have worked with Michaela. All yes, right. she's top notch. Fantastic. So we have a caller. This is a very timely topic, I think, as this caller points out. A caller from Phillips, South Dakota, who wants to know how one of our smaller rural communities, like Redfield, would be able to handle a large disaster like the recent tornadoes that they had in Kentucky. Wow, that isn't doesn't that scenario. Well, just give let's you just start with the easy stuff first, right? <laughs> okay, so what, what happens is within rural counties you have a rural emergency manager. And then you have EMS and hopefully there's good communication between emergency management EMS and your local hospital if you've got a local hospital. Remember there are a lot of counties, South Dakota don't have a hospital. And they over the years I know in Spink County have run multiple drills, multiple training scenarios so that we all work in an integrative sort of fashion. And um, I saw this work very well. Unfortunately we had an active shooter issue in Redfield four or five years ago and between law enforcement, local EMS, the hospital, 
in the EMTs, because remember, just because the hospital's closed doesn't mean that people aren't having chest pain, heart attacks, car wrecks. Mm -hmm. Still going to happen. And we were able to work around that because our, our people, are, people are trained on, on how to go to that next level. Yeah. Uh, and there are training programs or training scenarios where the local community decides who's going to do what in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Where are we going to do this? Um, but I imagine a lot of those places, it really overwhelmed their services. And uh, one of the big challenges would be what happens if your hospital's taken off the map by that tornado or mm -hmm. if the active shooter is at your hospital. Yeah, so we were non-functional, but because we had thought about this way in advance, we had mutual aid agreements with both hospitals in Aberdeen, and we were able to pre-position a helicopter where the shooter could not shoot at it. Very important. Law enforcement assigned to protect that. So that we had uh, a couple different levels of how we could respond, uh, even though we had no hospital at that point, no functional hospital. What a difficult situation. <laughs> yeah, everybody just pulled together, worked pretty good. But even larger systems can really be overwhelmed, even when they're not already operating at maximal capacity with um, something like COVID. Were you in Sioux City? I know you spent some time training in Sioux City. Were you in Sioux City when the uh, airplane disaster happened? No, I was actually in med school, but back in the day, when I was an EMT volunteering with Woodbury County Emergency Services, I seem to remember we had a scenario kind of more tar tied to maybe an air guard plane or something coming down. Um, one of the things when it comes to disaster preparedness, um, that's another place where the med school, the Department of Health, the Medical Association really worked well. We've produced over 5,000 students now that have had core disaster life support, mm -hmm. core plus four. So it is an entry level awareness course, so at least people have an idea of how this game is going to change. Now recently when you talked about the plane, uh, the Healthcare Coalition in South Dakota uh, ran a um, a drill similar to that with a plane going down in near Sioux Falls and how to offload a hospital and onload and yeah it's it can get very complicated very fast but in the big picture um, we really don't have a choice anymore not to plan yeah. to play absolutely because yep. you're gonna play eventually whether you plan for it or yep. not we have a viewer who wanted to know how much does it cost to equip a rural ambulance? I have absolutely no clue. Well, um, so, wish I had some of the EMTs from Redfield to answer this question, but I, I'm sure the rig itself has got to be in that two, dollars $300,000 range. They're um, not cheap. They're not cheap. No, they are not. And then, then you got to house it. Then you got to maintain it. Then you got to. You got to staff it. You got to staff it. And then you have to keep the training up for the people that are staffing it. So the actual equipment costs, seat collars, oxygen, all that stuff, that's that's pennies. That's nothing. It's the, the staff, the training, um, even the integrated radio systems we have in South Dakota are pretty pretty spendy but wouldn't want to live without, without them. them 
We have a caller who wants to know what people who are housebound and unable to get out and actively do EMS services, what can they do to spread awareness and, and help the cause? Go to Cracker Barrel Sessions and corner your local legislator. And or your state or federal legislature. It doesn't matter, local, county, state, city, federal. And Write just, letters. Yeah, be that person. Yes, absolutely. There are, our leaders need to hear from us. They need to hear about this urgent need and yeah. that, that you're aware of it as a voter, that it's not just us asking not for just money. Prairie dogs. It's not just prairie dogs and doctors and paramedics asking for this right. this funding, but that uh, their constituents recognize the need and want that funding. And one thing that I, I, I'm aware of is apparently under the governor's um, budget, there's 20-some million dollars in there for EMS, fire. I'm not sure if, well, it's got to be voted on first. So, I mean, it's got to become law before we can even have any conjecture on where that's going to go, but um, I would think a pretty good chunk of it should end up in uh, federally designated rural and frontier counties. Which is most of South Dakota. Which is most of South Dakota. Even Brookings. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Uh, we have a caller from Rapid City who has heard about paramedics being used in emergency rooms across the country. Are they being used in emergency rooms in South Dakota? And if not, do you see them being utilized in the future? I, I, I don't practice in that environment. Now, we have one paramedic uh, that actively works as a rad tech, and then he helps out with uh, EMS and is leading actually our... Rad EM tech being a radiology yeah. technician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so we utilize his, uh, his skill set uh, whenever possible, but I'm not sure if they're actually in, say, the larger hospitals um, do they have full-time paramedics working in the ER? I don't know. I know at one point here in Brookings, the paramedics would assist in the emergency room, but now they've they've kind of moved them off. But our community is large enough that we do have that full-time paramedic and EMS services that are paid services and not just volunteer services. Right. I would think that would be a very... Um, a feasible thing for a lot of more rural communities to have those cross-trained people. We have a question from someone in Custer who wants to know how urgent it is for someone to get to the ER if they think they might be having a stroke. Not quite on EMS, but in yeah. emergency. Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about stroke, how we do stroke. We talk about that golden hour again. The um, way we do stroke in Redfield is we have a, an agreement with a line of healthcare systems in the cities. So you come in with stroke-like symptoms. My job is to stand there, make sure we are protecting your airway, et cetera. And within usually three to five minutes, we have a board-certified stroke neurologist is running the show. I'm there to just... Be the hands. Be the hands. And the quicker you can get there, the better the outcome. And I can tell you stories of how slick this works. Telemedicine. And no, you can't go home after I give you lytics. <laughs> I've had people actually say, can I go home now? No. Telemedicine is going to make revolutionize medical care. 30 seconds, Matt. Take home message for our, for our viewers. What do you want everybody to remember? I want you to remember that we have training programs available. They're funded. We need volunteers. 
that we have a group, uh, a, a cohort, the Department of Health, the Medical School, the Medical Association, and these AEHECs all rooting for you. And write your legislature and get your COVID shot. The winner of our drawing tonight is Richard from Sioux City. Thank you, Richard, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you soon, and we'll be back after this. Hello, and welcome to On Call Television. Over 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's disease, and 19,000 of these are from South Dakota. There was a, a while after the diagnosis, I was crying a lot. And at some point, the strong woman within me kind of stood up and said, there's got to be more than just Ellen McVeigh who's ever had Alzheimer's. This is truly a courageous effort by both of them to be here in front of you, and we should all be very grateful. Emergency Medical Services, EMS, in rural America are in a state of crisis. Difficulty recruiting EMTs, emergency medical technicians, and the financial constraints of EMS agencies are the major cause of this crisis. The majority of South Dakota is considered a medically underserved area, MUA, indicating too few primary care providers, high infant mortality, high poverty, or a high elderly population. Most of the MUAs are also designated as rural or frontier, increasing the likelihood of prolonged transport times to hospital-based medical care. Rural and frontier MUAs are historically served by volunteer EMS services. 73% of EMS agencies in South Dakota utilize volunteers. In 2016, 32% of volunteer agencies reported missing calls due to staff shortages. These conditions have led to a disparity in mortality rate for traumas for rural residents. An ad hoc group comprised of the University of South Dakota School of Medicine, South Dakota State Medical Association, Northeast and West River Area Health Education Centers, Sanford Academic Affairs EMS Outreach, and Community Memorial Hospital in Redfield has received funding through the U.S. Department of Labor and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to combat the EMS crisis in South Dakota and improve health outcomes for rural residents. For many students, grant money is now available to cover the cost of the EMT training available at the Sanford EMS Outreach. The synchronous online classes can be completed by the student at home while the hands-on portion may require some weekend travel. In addition, members of the ad hoc group developed the Dakota Responder Class curriculum, the goal of which is to train more people. Through a unique collaborative with Agtegra, a farmer-owned grain and agronomy cooperative with more than 6,300 member owners, in Eastern, North, and South Dakota, the Dakota Responder classes will initially be made available to Agtegra employees. 
Those who attend this class will be trained to provide emergency care for serious bleeding, opioid overdose, and use of automatic external defibrillators. Agtegra employees located in rural areas of the Dakotas are well positioned to provide life-saving care until EMS personnel arrive on scene. Ultimately, the goal is to increase the number of trained EMTs to staff rural EMS centers and improve emergency response times. To encourage this endeavor in your community, share this information with your neighbors and contact your legislators and county commissioners to urge their support for local EMS centers where you live. Thank you to our guest, Matt Owens, for volunteering his time to help us learn more about EMS services. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, and until next time, time, stay, stay healthy, healthy out, out there, there people. people. We need the nourishment of food to maintain life. Sometimes that very sustenance can fight our body's defenses. Adverse food reactions, next time, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. I grew up on a farm near Wessington Springs, South Dakota. All my life I've been an advocate for rural communities. One of the major challenges we face is providing reliable and easy access to primary health care. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, my wife Kathy and I came back to Wessington Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. Just like you, we love our small town. I serve on the Healing Words Foundation Board. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of the Prairie Dock. Rick and Joni Holmes started this mission of providing objective, evidence-based health care information free of charge to everyone, especially to people in rural areas who may have limited access to health care professionals. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons. That's the Prairie Doc, and it's up to us to help to continue that legacy. Please give to the Healing Words Foundation. Go to prairiedoc.org and make your donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, 
Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Link Ponset Sealing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.